Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. How many times do you end up watching a show or a movie or listening to a song and feeling, this is just okay. It's not the worst. It's not great. It's just mid Today on the podcast, you'll hear how the entertainment we consume got so mid. Hint, it's got a lot to do with how we listen and watch. I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. This is Commotion. Listen, it's a bit of an unusual show today. Usually we talk about a TV show or a movie or an artist, but we're not starting there today. We're starting with a, with a, with a feeling. It's a feeling that I've had a lot this year. And it's something that I've noticed some folks are writing about a lot right now, that our pop culture, the music we listen to, what we watch, what we share online, it's all becoming a bit bland. It's not bad. It's not great. It's just fine. It's mid. I mean, mid is not a new slang term, but it has really kind of come into its own this year. It's another way of saying something is middling. It's not particularly special. It's not even that the art itself is mid. It's that the experience we're having with that art that we love feels diluted in some way. So much of it kind of feels like a shrug. We'll get into it with three people who will not go quietly into the great shrug. Writers and critics Nico Stratus, Kyle Cheka, and Bilga Ibiri. Kyle, Bilga, Nico, welcome to the show. How's it going, everybody? Hi, hi. Hey. Hi. Here. I love I love a greeting that is not mid, so thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Let me start with this. Uh, mid has been around for a few years, but it has kind of dominated the zeitgeist in the last little while, and it feels like the perfect way to explain how I'm feeling about pop culture. Nico, how does that feeling show up for you? I mean, I just feel like everything is this kind of like flat plateau of kind of nothing where every like everything is sort of here, but it's all together. It's all just kind of like a lot of it just feels like hollow and bland, like a lot of stuff that exists feels like it's there for me to make content to talk about it on the Internet. Hmm. And it's just it's like this weird cultural shorthand that we've all adopted where like stuff doesn't like the culture we consume doesn't mean anything so much as it means that we get to make something about it to try to say something about ourselves. Uh, and, and it sort of like starts to just feel like, what am I what, am, what are we doing here? So in terms of like the art that we consume, like there, there's something about it as being like maybe used as a means to another end of like, okay, maybe we'll just use this as a part of a conversation about ourselves, but it's not really telling of anything. And like the actual piece of art itself doesn't end up standing up as any kind of special, right? Is that what you're getting yeah. at, Nico? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a base. It's like a good, yeah. it's like we have boiling water and we're calling it soup. <laughs> that sounds kind of grim. I... I don't want to like be mean to people who are enjoying the art that is being made right now. I'm just kind of also really alert to this flatness. So I want to come back to that in a moment. Kyle, you wrote about internet culture. How how does it feel to be online in 2023? I feel like it it's pretty bad. <laughs> we've all we've all kind of noticed okay. that the internet feels more mediocre. It yeah. like doesn't work as well, whether it's Google search or like your Twitter feed. 
Uh, and it's harder and harder to find like something you actually connect with. Yeah. I think like Nico's comment, everything exists to spur more content. Everything right. exists to like generate something else. And you're never focusing on the thing itself. And I feel like all of the feeds that we're consuming all the time are encouraging us to just like not pay attention to anything, to just like dip in and out, to always mm. be superficial. And that's lending to this atmosphere of total mediocrity. Well, even even that word, Kyle, the word content, because I think like content has a way of flattening so many other types of art, right? Like movies mm. become content and TV shows become content <laughs> and memes become content and like essays become content. And there is this kind of flattening effect of like, I'm gonna get up in the morning and go to my content dispenser and just like press the button a couple of times and nothing kind of feels like it's standing out in a way, right? Yeah, and your life is content too. Like <laughs> you're, you're also trapped in this ecosystem producing content from your own life. And there is that idea of a dispenser where you're just like going to your feeds, consuming whatever pops up at the top of the feed, which is usually like an algorithmic recommendation that's supposed to appeal to you. Mm. And it just discourages you from, I think, thinking deeply about stuff or experiencing things that are like challenging or weird or surprising. And like, usually that's what we want from culture. We want something that's like shocks us a little bit or actually makes us think. And that's like totally not what the internet is doing right now. Bilga, you're a critic. Your job is to review things. Your job is to find out the thing that is actually standing out. But where do you see this idea of mid playing out? Well, I mean, if you look at movies, for example, you know, we've kind of come to the tail end of all these trends that that kind of came out of Hollywood. I mean, for the past, past like 15, 20 years or so, I mean, we've been living in the age of the franchise movie, mm. right? The sequels, endless sequels, endless series and things like that. Now, Hollywood's always done sequels. That's not new, but... Um, it used to be, you know, you did three at most, right? And usually the third movie was not so great, but then you kind of moved on to, you know, something yeah. else. What are you saying about Die Hard 3, man? What are you saying? Huh? Die Hard 3 is great. Now, Die Hard 4. <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> Seven, eight, um, nine, um, 12. Yeah. <laughs> but it yes. became kind of this thing to just keep producing series, keep producing these franchises until we all got kind of tired of them. And, and so what you get is right now, you know, we're, I feel like we're sort of at the tail end of, you know, the, the Marvel cycle or whatever mm. the heck we want to call it. And at this point, like the movies don't matter anymore. They're simply there to kind of set up the next film. Right. I mean, if you think about like, oh, when a that's new such a sad way to put yeah. it. But yeah, continue. No, but when a yeah. superhero movie opens, what is the first thing anybody talks about? They talk about the the, the, the credits, the end credit sequences, <laughs> right? The little stingers. And what are those? Those are basically ads for the next movie, right? Uh, they're setting up new villains or introducing new characters. Like Nobody wants to talk about the movie they just saw. They want to talk about, oh, what's, what's going to be the next one? Um, and so as a result, these movies don't need to be good. They simply need to occupy some space and time and get us to watch the next one. Okay, can we just talk about systems for a moment, Bill Gell? Like, what is driving this kind of mediocre content within film and TV, do you think? Well, I mean, they've never really liked to take risks, right, in, in TV or in mm. film. Um, but there, there is the, there's a, usually this sense that when you're setting something up, when you're establishing something, you kind of have to make it good. You have to create some sense of quality so that people will come to see it. But once they come to see it, the understanding, at least among executives, is – they want the familiar. They want the same thing, slightly different. And so as a result, you just get repetition. And you see it with streaming, too. I mean, you know, when, when Netflix first kind of started creating its own shows and its own movies, there was the sense that they were trying to really sort of get noticed. Um, but after a while, it's like, 
I mean, remember how much everybody was like really into Tiger King, even though it wasn't very, very good. But like <laughs> yeah. th- those like Netflix initial like Netflix true crime shows, people were really into them. And now it's kind of like, I mean, you see on the news, some crazy thing happened in Florida. And the first thing anybody says is, well, you know, they're going to make a seven part Netflix series. About it. And it's not they're not joking. Like they're literally like that is exactly what's going to happen. You know? Yeah, there's there's been this uh, this real trend of like turning relatively recent news into documentaries. And that the idea of like turning news into content also feels a little bit bizarre and strange to me. I want to come back to that in a moment. But I want to talk about one more thing when it comes to the movies, which is like we've got this disappearance of mid budget movies. And I think this had kind of an interesting effect, right? You've had these like $200 million movies and then these movies that are made for $5 million, something real low. So as a result, you got the megastars, people who can open a big movie, Tom Cruise, Margot Robbie, and then kind of like only medium famous people who can sort of do those low budget movies. And we like I remember a time when mid-budget movies were supposed to be the pipeline to create superstars, but it feels like fewer and fewer actors are actually graduating to that level of fame. They end up mo- making movies that are like just okay. They only have like a little bit of a budget, but as a result, like movies don't feel like a blockbuster anymore. Am I the only one feeling that? You are not the only one feeling that. I mean, the the death of the medium budget Hollywood movie is something that's been written about endlessly. Hmm. I mean, a lot of different forces coming into it, but certainly, you know, the the, the dominance of franchise movies, superhero movies, you know, action fantasies, sci-fi fantasies, that that sort of thing, um, that has played a part. And as a result, you know, this whole thing, this this medium range of medium budget comedies and dramas, which also used to be called, if you remember, star driven vehicles, star vehicles. <laughs> that's right. That's what we used um, to call them. And those were the movies that helped create people like Tom Cruise and Julia yeah. Roberts and mm-hmm. Will Smith. Um, they don't make that many of them anymore. I mean, they, they make a couple every year and they may be one or two possibly hit. But for the most part, you start off in low budget films or with small parts in bigger movies. And then. If you're going to be a star, the test for your stardom isn't whether you can open a drama or a comedy. It's whether you can get cast in a big franchise. I mean, look at a guy like Timothy Chalamet. Mm -hmm. You know, he's become a star. I think he's legitimately a star. But the measure of his stardom isn't whether he can open one of those movies. It's how's he going to be in the new Dune? You Mm -hmm. know, how's he going to be as Willy Wonka? Like, that's kind of what's what's going on. Um, And and it's sad. But, But ironically enough... When I was younger and we saw these, you know, medium budget comedies and dramas, back then that's what we thought of as mid, right? And we kind of <laughs> took those movies for granted. I remember watching, you know, movies like, um, you know, Sleeping with the Enemy and stuff like that. We're like, oh, yeah, Julia Roberts, uh, Dying Young, whatever, you know. <laughs> and now I would kill for movies like that. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Those movies really do feel like a time gone by. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough.
My name is Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud, and this is Commotion. Look, there's a lot to get into when it comes to mid-TV and mid-movies, and we're going to dive into all of that on January 1st. But right now on the podcast with Nico Stratus, Kyle Cheka, and Bill Gabiri, we're going to shift gears. We're going to talk about the internet for a moment. Kyle, you recently wrote an article, and the headline was, While the Internet Isn't Fun Anymore. Listen, Kyle, I think of the internet as a fun place. How did it change this year? Yeah, like originally we went to the internet to like find cool stuff and like surf interesting websites and find weird things that like we couldn't encounter in the world around us. And now it just feels like kind of that internet has gone away in favor of like the same few digital platforms that everyone uses. So we're all on Facebook, we're all on Twitter, we look at TikTok. And those are the only places where we find new stuff and where we consume news or videos or audio or articles, kind of everything flows through these feeds. And I think that's contributed to the sense that the internet is less fun or more boring. Like it's Mm. just harder to find diverse experiences and we're all kind of molded into these same few spaces and formats and forced to work through them. You know, whether we're tweeting or making a front facing video or just like trying to communicate with friends on Instagram, it's like fighting the tide. Yeah, like, Nico, the promise of the internet has always been that we'll have endless options to express ourselves, endless places to go that sort of reflect those um, self-expressions. What is a moment that you've had on the internet this year that encapsulates this feeling of mid, this feeling of compression of what the internet's for for you? I mean, we will all remember this year where we briefly learned and then immediately forgot the name Matt Reif, where it's just like, all, <laughs> there's like, oh, there's all these That's like the comedian Matt Reif, yeah. Yeah, like, exactly. You have to, like, qualify who this person is. And if <laughs> I, I said the name of another comedian, you would be like, yes, the comedian. I've heard of this person. But, like, yes. you know, he comes out with his, with his like, baby's first misogyny Netflix comedy special and, like, sort of comes and goes. And there's a brief uproar out of it because he got in a fight with a six-year-old and there's all this other stuff. But it all kind of amounts to nothing. Like, it just sort of exists to be a thing to take up space on the internet for a little mm. while that doesn't really mean anything to anybody. Like, I've yet to really come across a person that's like, no, I'm a mad rife defender or whatever in the same way that there's like Chappelle defenders or there's all these other defenders of controversial public figures Mm -hmm. there's just this like sort of middle ground where stuff just exists just to create a conversation for a week just so we're still talking about Netflix or we're still talking about this or that or whatever and it's just like you walk away feeling nothing like I just it's like a nihilist like I just feel like okay Mm -hmm. well I'm back at zero and I'm always going to be at zero in this place well Kyle how much of this is us actually like missing the monoculture in a way missing a moment when when we had tv shows and movies where we all kind of like were able to talk about because like now that we all live in our little fragmented lives um on the internet it kind of feels like no one is existing in the same world as other people and like the only shared connections we have are these kind of relatively mid pieces of content Right. Like, I think we always want to have a public conversation. Like, yeah. we want to connect with other people over yeah. what we're consuming and think that we're consuming the same stuff as other people, like, this have this collective experience. But I think, like, how we use the internet now kind of makes that much harder. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, as with all of these generic comedians <laughs> that, like, surface for a few weeks and then you utterly forget about them and until your friend references their name once more. Uh, like that's what we're experiencing instead. It's like we're all siloed into these different lanes of consumption and yeah. we can't reach other people and have that greater conversation. I think that like leads to that feeling of art being less meaningful or yeah. 
because we can't develop our own meanings because we can't engage with it collectively. I, I mean, the word that comes up over and over again with this idea and this feeling of mid, and I realize like this is a bit of a heady conversation. This is not sort of tied to a specific piece of art or anything. Um, is the word that, that comes up over and over again is algorithmic. Everything sort of feels like it's delivered to you by an algorithm that says, ah, you would probably like this kind of thing. And I would say, Nico, like social media platforms, like music streaming services also sell us on this idea of unlimited access. You can listen to anything you want. Uh, this is totally going to free up your listening habits. And then it all kind of ends up sounding like this. I feel mean. I feel mean. I really do. I feel mean for playing Fred again. That song is called 10 by Fred again. Uh, Nico, a lot of uh, critics, let's say, have dubbed this music the Spotify sound. John Carmonica of yeah. the New York Times is called the Spotify core. It's like music that can fit into your playlist, whether, you know, you just played Taylor Swift or you just played Morgan Wallen or you just played, like, I don't know, Aphex Twin. Like, you just kind of will just get served up to you by the algorithm. Can we talk about how the platform reinforces the Spotify sound? I mean, I dare you to play that after playing AFX Twin and, and just like <laughs> see how this see how this all plays out for you. But it is true, right? Like this idea of like you know the internet as a piece of cultural discourse is sort of designed. At least the dream of it when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, when the internet sort of came online, was like you will find other people that you've never met and you will have shared interests and you can say if you like X, you might like Y. But mm. it, you know, like Y might be something drastically different. But there's going to be tones of this thing you like. Mm -hmm. And an AI doesn't really work that way, right? These algorithms don't work that way. They say, oh, you like Taylor Swift. Do you want more things that sound like Taylor Swift? Why don't we make you a playlist that sounds like Taylor Swift? Right. And like, you know, Taylor Swift is Taylor Swift. Sure. There's no denying that. But like there's a bajillion Taylor Swift copies or there's people that are doing a very specific sound because they know it fits into these things. Right. And you want to get on these playlists because Spotify is harder than ever to make money off of. So mm -hmm. you want to be on these playlists so that you're in this upper echelon. So you actually can like you can touch the ring for just long enough that you could like make a little bit of money. You can make your name and get out like Fred again. Like if you told me you designed Fred again in a lab this morning, I would 100 percent believe you because it's just <laughs> it's again, it's nothing. It's plain. It's like, oh, we need to have something in the background of this club in an episode of Law and Order. Let's invent a guy. His name is Fred again. And it's just like... Even the name is like mediocre. It's like, oh, yeah. Fred again. Fred, like uh, Fred comma again, again, question mark almost. <laughs> It's so funny. And it's just like, what are we achieving here? Like, are we making art that like matters to us where we're like, mm. you know, like when you would like make a mixtape for someone you like, and you're like, this means everything about me, as opposed to like, here's a bunch of bland songs that you can draw your own feelings into, because it's not really saying anything important. Like, it is a very weird space for culture and art right now, especially in this like bigger tier of the stuff that we hear that gets elevated. Uh, Kyle, I'm sensing that you have some feelings about Fred again. Go in, go ahead. Let's go. <laughs> for sure. I mean, I find it interesting, like Brian Eno was one of his mentors, and yeah. Brian Eno was the guy who came up with the idea of ambient music, which mm -hmm. was music that you don't have to pay attention to. <laughs> yes. Like you can either pay attention or you cannot pay attention. And they just did an album it. together, Fred again and yeah, Brian yeah. Eno. Yeah. And but I feel like Fred again has forgotten the like interesting part of that, or it's just <laughs> like, oh, what if I made music that was just perfect to be ignored and like perfect to mesh with every other kind of music? And I think that's what works on Spotify or in yeah. any feed. It's like the minimal disruption is what succeeds the most. Like the thing yeah. that makes you continue to pay attention, not skip the song, but also like not think about it 
deeply enough to discover that you don't like it. Yeah, I mean, like, this is, that idea is actually exactly at the core of this midness, this idea of, like, no friction, right? I mean, Bilga, it's really worth noting that, you know, HBO Max dropped the HBO from the name this year, and the reason they explicitly gave is that they felt that the HBO label is intimidating to viewers. And instead, I'm not watching I May Destroy You on HBO. I'm watching The Gilded Age on Max. Like, the idea is specifically to remove friction in a way. And so I want us to get into a little bit of friction. I want us to sort of talk about, like, who are the risk takers of right now. So before we go, can we just talk a little bit about the work that has defied midness for you? Who's managed to actually break through in this kind of cloud of midness? Well, actually, the the one I'm thinking of is is you'd think it would be mid, but it's not. Is Barbenheimer right? I mean, Barbenheimer mm. is the, the internet meme and all that, but yeah. you know, Barbie and Oppenheimer, two movies that you know in the parlance of our times did not have to go as hard as they did, right? I mean, <laughs> one is one is a you know biopic about like a great man, most important man of the 20th century, blah blah. Yeah, it could have been just fine. It could have been just kind of there, and you know, people would have gone to see it. Not as many people as it ultimately went. Yeah. And Bar and Barbie is you know based on the toy brand. I mean, it's trying to set up a new franchise. It's got the colors. It's got the pop pop music and everything. Didn't have to be great. Um, I think both movies would have made money if they were just okay. Yeah. Uh, and instead, you know, two two artists, two filmmakers who really kind of you know take care in their work. Yeah. I think created two very remarkable movies, very different movies, obviously, um, and. You know, look at the success that they had. I mean, you know, yeah. that, that's the thing. It's like we think of mid as being something that defines success nowadays. But actually, if you can break free of it, you know, it's it's even greater. I mean, Oppenheimer mm-hmm. made almost a billion dollars and Barbie made like a billion and a half. And, right. I, and I think in part because people were starving for something new and something different. And all the people that were supposed to go to the superhero movies this year and did not went to these movies, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I think like we've been stuck on this uh, sort of talking about the superhero movie cycle, but you're right to signal that it is coming to an end because we are kind of exhausted with this level of midness. Like how many sort of superhero origin stories can you really take? Uh, Nico, who made you feel or what made you feel? Something other than, yeah, that was all right. Final season of Reservation Dogs was just like such a perfect Mm. closing loop of the story they were telling in this show. It's also like it does a thing really well, which I always love in a TV show, which is uses music as part of the world that doesn't just have a generic soundtrack in the background. Music plays a really big part in Reservation Dogs. And I didn't see a lot of people talk about that, but it's really present in it in really beautiful and interesting ways. And they just like they managed to tell a really heartwarming like funny and sad and difficult story all in once that felt very realized mm-hmm. and they told what they wanted to tell in the time they had to tell it. And it was just such a beautiful final season of such a great show. I think what that makes me realize is important to point out is that like amid all the, amid, amid all the mid, um, there is, there are a lot of gems to be found. I like, we have to sort of yeah. spend a bit of time trying to find them and not just sort of, you know, look at the thing that is being served up to you and go like, yep, this is going to be the thing that I consume today. And I'm, Specifically point this out because the number one thing that was watched by you know, like on Netflix, according to that Netflix report that they released um, early earlier last week, is that you know between January and June, most people watched The Night Agent. I'll give you a billion dollars right now if you can name the star of The Night Agent. I'll do it. Let's go. I'll do it. Uh, Kyle, it's a new year coming up. Is there any is there any way out of this midness? Is there any way out of this cloud of everything mid? 
I mean, last last year, I think I did a kind of algorithm cleanse. I was like, I'm going to give up all of these feeds and like see where I'm at without them. And I do feel like I think more people do that as there's more like ennui with the internet and distrust mm-hmm. of it. Like, I think the best way to figure out what you like or like find something interesting is just to get out, get out of the internet, talk to your friends, like try something that's not TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, uh, like dig a little bit, just try to go into some niche, some obscure thing and like really figure out what you like that maybe other people don't like rather than the thing that the most people possible like. <laughs> what what a retro analog concept, Kyle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think- <laughs> Make a mixtape, record cassettes, you know. I think that is a perfect place to leave it. Kyle, Bilga, Nico, thank you so much for your time. I've really appreciated this. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. This was fun. Of course. Bilga Abiri is a film critic for Vulture. He was in New Haven, Connecticut. Nico Stratus is a culture critic who writes the Substack Anxiety Shark. She's in Toronto. And Kyle Cheka is a staff writer for The New Yorker. And that is it for the podcast today. Hey, remember, you can listen to any episode of the show anytime you like, wherever you get your podcasts. If you got a second, check us out on Instagram. We are at CommotionCBC. My name is Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm going to be here tomorrow. If you'll be here, let's hang out. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.